I know the world is a different place right now and that you are no longer able to service your members inside your brick and mortar. Maybe you're in the stage where you're starting to open up the doors to your members at your brick and mortar. But if you have not realized that remote digital live streaming on-demand services is a thing of the future, a thing of now, it's not even the future, it's fucking now, then I don't know what you think you're going to do with your micro gym over the next 10 plus years. You need to get with Studio. Studio is a product by Flex. It allows micro gym owners a free to use platform, free to use platform to upload all of your media content and distribute it to your members in a way that gives them an amazing UX user experience into a well-branded, crisp, clean app. You're able to see engagement in there. You're able to create community. You're able to upload different playlists and styles of workouts so that your workouts, your app now through Studio for your micro gym becomes the Netflix of workouts for your members. Go and check out Studio. The link is in my Instagram bio. Get signed up. It is free. The crew over at Flex made this for you guys to help get you through this pandemic, and you need to take advantage of it. Go set up your studio. Hit me up and share with me. I'd love to see how it's going. Do I need to like move? Oh, yeah. God, I haven't podcasted in a long time. Yeah. No. You haven't made content in a long time? I, I wouldn't have imagined. That's so weird of you, Joe. You're just constantly so, making wouldn't content. Wouldn't it be funny if the first thing you asked me was like, so, how's the new podcast going? Because I've definitely said that four or five times. 100%. Well, I'm actually just going to leave that in here. What is up, guys? It is Stu, and it is another episode of Jamming with Joe. Um, episode no, episode number unknown. We just we keep churning them out. Gotta be in the twenties or thirties at this point. I don't know. I just have a, I just I think after like the seventh one, I just threw, started throwing random numbers on there. Yeah. Like someone asked me one time, like, did you and Joe ever talk? I'm like, yeah. They're like, which one is it? I'm like, number twelve, six thousand and twelve. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. there's definitely a six thousand and twelfth episode number. Um, but anyway, so we were talking about what we wanted to jam on on this. But before we even just kind of get into that, uh, what what have you been doing? Like, what have you been? I haven't seen you. Oof. So I reached a, a point where I had done enough what I had considered enough research. So research I, for what? For what I'm seeing now. And I guess I could just say it here is what the new Flex platform is going to be. So I think after the success of studio last year and watching that kind of grow the way that I'd always imagined my entire platform growing. How many gyms like, did you get to on the platform? Oof. I mean, in the first three months, we had over 300. Yeah. Um, and even now, I mean, I haven't done really much talking about it and I kind of know it's a product that people are still leveraging and using and like waiting for the new feature set. But it's also like, I talked to at least five or six customers in the last month that are just like, yeah, we're cool with the way to like, we don't even need anything. This is great. And so when you have that kind of feedback, disparate feedback, it's up to you, right? Like I get to decide kind of where I wanted to go. And I think the decisions that I wanted to make with enough time were a, do I want to keep two different products, right? My CMS CRM product and the studio product. Do I want to drop one of the two and just put all of my efforts behind one of them? Or do I want to figure out some way to merge them together in some sort of new product? And I think that there was this this feeling of urgency when it first happened, because you feel like you caught lightning in a bottle in many ways. And what I realized is at that time, 
you know, normally they say that the best part about being a small business is how quickly you can move to do new things. And I was like, yeah, but I think sometimes that neglects the fact that it takes some real like thought to decide a product that's going to work for two to 10 years, not something that's just going to work for the next six to 18 months. Um, you also built the product for a time that anyone building a product for the COVID pandemic thing was essentially building it knowing there was a shelf life on whatever they built because the world you're assuming has to resume some sort of new normal hybrid online and in person or it's going to go back to normal pretty much the whole thing so essentially it's like you're creating a uh, this temporary thing that can service people in the immediate need get it out there as quick as possible but then knowing full well that it's going to also then have to yeah it's going to have to pivot and we have no idea how to predict where that's going to pivot to right and the question is do you pivot product in features or do you pivot profit uh do you pivot the product in the audience like maybe there's a different audience that i can now attest to because features would probably be easier like finding a whole new audience sounds, oh yeah. yeah well a whole new it depends but if you're if i'm working on a circle and i think that's kind of where i ended up with studio is that studio is a product that i think in a year from now we'll be talking about how many independent trainers and coaches are leveraging it and instagram people and influencers are using it to grow their business and then the gym owners will be a smaller subset of people who not a smaller subset of the gym owners. I think this is a huge market for digital fitness, but they'll look at it as an amenity. And honestly, if you go back to our podcast, I think that's what I predicted a year ago, which is like the concept that if I do this correctly, the long-term play is actually with a much broader audience than just the people that are using it today. Um, and what does that look like? What I realized along the way, I think that if I would have went with that theory right away, I think I would have alienated a lot of customers. Like, I think I would have ended up building the perfect product for the people who aren't on the platform. Correct. And the gym owner, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this, everything, their money, their lease, their infrastructure, their systems, their vision, vision being the big one is all wrapped up in in-person delivery. Right. So to truly convince them that they're going to change that, that was a small, I know a lot of people see, feel like everyone was talking about pivoting to digital and doing that. I truly feel a very small subset actually pivoted completely to it unless they were forced it. They got kicked out of their building because they couldn't afford the rent or they had to shut right. down because they couldn't afford the overhead and they were forced that way. But so many of these businesses are three years in, five years in, seven years in to completely be like, hey, listen, you got to change your whole vision. That that doesn't happen in the course of months. Sure. I also think, though, that there's a concept of like treating the customer like they're never going to change, like almost feeding a dead horse, right? Like over time, at some point, you have to understand that digital fitness is not an option anymore. Like if you're sitting here in 2021 and thinking that let's just jump 10 years from now, that there isn't going to be a crap ton of digital fitness out there, like way more than there is today, I, I think that you're just wrong. I think that there's a lot of indicators that show that it's going, that's not to say, and this is where I think a lot of the conversation comes in, which is that's not to say that in-person fitness is going anywhere. It's literally just an expansion of fitness. Like this is a good thing. And I think that we take this innate feeling like there's a certain amount of people that are gonna work out and that's just it. And most of those people are going to want in person. And I just don't think that's true anymore. The post office is running strong and email's been a thing for a hot minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not going the anywhere. The radio, Sirius XM is still a thing. Doesn't that boggle it, your mind? It, you'll boggle, it doesn't you, even make sense. I realized this the other day. Someone was asking me, it was like, what's your number one thing you want to li you, you listen to podcast wise? And I was like, I don't really have a, I don't listen to a regular podcast. And I said, I'd love to be listening to Howard Stern again on the reg like I did when I was in grade school and high school. 
but I'm not going to get serious just to listen to Howard Stern. Exactly. Why is he not podcasting? And yet you're kind of seeing all of these same things happen in the new stuff, right? And like now Joe Rogan is the new Howard Stern, and instead of radio, it's podcasting, and instead of the platforms that were created by whoever understood how to get radio waves out are now being created by people who understand digital. And that's why, like, the... Why do you think he doesn't podcast? Is it just I have no idea. the serious money? I never money really followed or, him. Yeah, oh, I used to... I mean, one of the best fucking interviewers of all time. My my guess would probably be it has something to do with syndication, right? Yeah. He probably signed long-term contracts. Like, it's almost like the billion-dollar contract that somebody like LeBron signs, where it's like, you're never going to switch. It doesn't sure. ever make sense. Yeah. Like, you've made so... Like, if someone's He did it early you, enough where podcasting wasn't even on the horizon. Right. And, and, and in many ways, I don't think you could have guessed it. And if you think about it, podcasting has been around for a long time. It just caught fire during the pandemic. Like podcasting has been out. So podcasting came out of Apple. Yeah. From their like 2008, 2008. Even before that. Yeah, really? Right? It was with the iPod. Yeah. Because the idea was that you were casting to an iPod, which is why they call it podcasts. Like they were invented in many ways by Apple. And it just caught fire now. Like, now it's more exciting. And even uh, Dave Portnoy, right, he talks about it for the Barstool. Wait, who's that? Oh, the bar. okay, Barstool. Oh, yeah, the Barstool yeah. president. And he talks about it. He's like, when podcasts were pitched to us even three years ago, we were like, eh, I don't really see how you're going to make a lot of money off of that, but go for it. And we have some that we funded. And now he's like, we have the number one sports podcast. We have the number one um, hockey podcast. Like, because they saw something that we didn't and we were innovative enough to give them the money to fund their future success. So it's like, I think you're just gonna keep seeing that over and over. It's the same cycles, it's just what's the new medium. And I think that people that think we're in the, like we have a maturity in the internet are the people that I think are missing the point. Like the internet is incredibly immature. Still, we're only like 20, 25 years into the internet as we know it. That's nothing in comparison to everything else that's been around for, you know, hundreds of years even. So it's like when you look at it like that and you say, ah, like something like I heard a stat the other day, like two thirds of all transactions that take place on the Internet are on the dark web. So I literally that was my question for you. I don't I've never been on the dark web. Me neither. Okay. Okay. That's okay. That's mm-hmm. surprising me. I figured you would have been on the dark web. How is is that like a different Mozilla Firefox that I have to download? In a sense, yeah. You basically download a Tor browser, so it's just a different way of browsing the internet, and it's untraceable, and that's why they use it. So it's an incredibly anonymous, almost decentralized version of the internet. So because everything you do on the internet gets tracked. Correct. Everything. I don't care if you're in VPN. You're going through a, a provider. So like Spectrum knows everything that you've ever done because your requests have to go somewhere. And they're going through your internet service. So then in the dark web, they don't go, like, who starts, like, where does all the information go? Yeah, now you're in a room that I don't know. I'm in a room, okay. I figured, like, this was, like, one thing I was like, I just want to, like, I just pictured, like, the. (laughs) this is how I picture, this is how naive my brain is. I think of the internet, like, the light mode on my MacBook, and then the dark web is just the dark mode where everything's actually just darker. <laughs> like, it's just a darker shade of everything, but it's still I'm able to access. Like, I can still go on, like, pets.com on the on the dark web, right? From my understanding, everything that exists would also exist on the dark web. It's just the transparency of the communication of who's doing what is different. So when I think of dark web, I, or dark, I feel like dark Sith. I feel like this is, like, this place where just evil happens. And like, I you only do up. evil. I haven't looked this up, but my guess is that the dark web was not named the dark web by the people on it. Probably, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. It's always named by the people who don't want you using it. Sounds it. racist. It probably it came out with the ISPs because they're like, we don't want people on this thing because they can bypass ours, you know, our stuff. So we'll call it something really mad, and then we'll tell all the people in Congress to say it about it. We'll tell the people on media to talk about it this way. I mean, that's kind of how the world works. White web, way. dark web, whatever. <laughs> whatever. 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 I want to bun that up. Have some roots in there. Um, all right. So with that, I don't even know where we're going, but I know where I want to go next. Uh, 
I'm curious. You're working on the new version of Flex. You're doing all that good stuff. I, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds there, but is any how much of what you saw with studio and what you see with studio or how you believe digital works out and whether you're going to be more influencer and personal trainer and an online fitness coach base versus gym owner who's going to be using it as amenity, how much of that influences and because I use Flex, and it, how much is that going to influence the Flex experience or the Flex service? So really, I'm looking at it as I originally had a product attached to an agency. That's kind of what Flex was when I looked at it like a global business structure. Like if I had to define what it was, it was a product that serves fitness customers, but we were an agency behind it. I would help people design their websites. I would help people customize their content management systems, right? I would even offer consulting on top of it. That's very agency-like. But I think the ultimate goal with me was always to build some sort of scalable platform. So some way that you could use this in whatever way you want and you pay because it's working for whatever you're using it for. Does that make sense? Like it's a little bit more abstract, um, but it takes a level to get there. Like you have to interact with a bunch of people. And when you're when you're doing that coming out as a platform, it's a lot harder to talk to your customers because you're talking to, let's say 15 different customers who are doing 15 different things. So how do you satisfy those needs? So you have to niche down at some point and then grow. I spent the last basically three and a half years talking to exclusively gym owners and understanding what their actual pain points are in a way that sometimes they can't even describe what their pain points are because what I like to do is goes back to first principles. Like how do I take the challenge you're having and the assessment, your assessment of that challenge and then actually dive deeper and be like, what's the root of this? Because the root of this may be the actual software that you're investing in, right? Like some people don't understand that the structure of the business that you're actually getting the software from has a lot to do with the future of that software. Like if you're in a venture back software, their goal is growth because that's how venture capital makes money. So they're gonna try to 100X their user base. What does that mean? That means they're gonna hire a bigger sales force. Your support is gonna go to shit. The product features will start to slow, but a lot of people will be onto the platform. So it'll seem like the platform's growing. Then they can go back to their investors and say, hey, we 200X this, and then everybody makes money. Yeah, so I have Acuity. Acuity just got recently acquired by Squarespace. Got it. And which, like, Squarespace for is the website, uh, you know, easy DIY website service, which makes sense. You know, every website needs some kind of scheduling arm. Acuity is a scheduling arm. Purchase them. Now they integrate. But simultaneously, little things are changing. So I used to have an Acuity affiliate link. So anyone I'd work with that was also going to use Acuity for whatever, you know, I was doing probably two, three hundred dollars a month in affiliate, like, ref, like, you know, right. and then they, that entire thing got wiped. They're like, yep, we're changing. It's going. There's now a third party person I have to go and create an account with and use their thing and the commission. I'm like, I'm not even fucking with that. I don't even care. Um, they're. I always. I think I've talked about it with you on the podcast. I love their customer service was always fucking dope, but it's still good. I haven't run into a ton of issues, but yeah, I can. I've started to even see just a few like there were some new features that were constantly coming out. There's some features that got taken away. There's just so. Would you say it's just indicative of what happens when a mammoth company like Squarespace purchases a smaller company? Not always just the bigger smaller. It really depends on what they're viewing the product as. So like some companies like um, an Apple or an Amazon, they'll purchase. I mean, I think there was just a stat that put out that like it was either Apple or Amazon. I'm going to get them mixed up. They, they purchase like on average three companies a month or four companies a month. Like if you think about that kind of scale over the last 10 years, you're talking. And I think it was even more than that, if I'm being honest. Um, you have to understand how they're treating those companies. So like sometimes they buy a company and they let them act completely on their own. Like you're disparate. You're, we're just a parent company. We're here for help and support and all of the things that you can't scale with. 
sometimes a company like in my the case of my brother, like the my, when my brother sold his company, they bought his entire company to be an internal tool. And his product was not helping small businesses. His product was helping international banks and a company bought it to use as an internal tool until they figured out how to use it and then res and resold. Like, so it really just depends on the person that's buying it. You have to do that kind of research. And it's funny because as the more research I do into how these companies are structured for my own understanding, I'm starting to be able to predict how platforms are going to grow over time because I'm able to assess software in a way that most people can't. So assess this for me. In the member management scene, there's MindBody's the biggest player out there, mm -hmm. probably the most Silicon Valley tech-based platform out there. And then you have more mom-and-pop-esque, uh, PushPress, Wattify, Zen Planner, um, whatever, a, a bunch of these ones. The majority of the market that most of the micro-gym owners are utilizing are more mom-and-pop-like structures. How come more of them haven't been bought by big tech yet? Okay, so... Ultimately, there's only two reasons to acquire a software company. Well, there's more than that, but there's probably two major ones. One is to acquire their user base or some bit of functionality. So the goal is that I'm going to take your users and put them in a much better product because a lot of mom and pop products tend to do one or two things really well and then other things okay. And the huge conglomerates like a mind body does everything average. So that's kind of their game. So they look at a company and they say, that's a feature set, oh, scheduling? That's a feature set that's kind of weak on our side. You have it really strong. We're gonna bring you in. And now we know that with that, we're gonna have the revenue immediately from the acquisition of the company to offset the cost of buying you. So if you look at it, like we even joked, I think we joked on a podcast once about Amazon buying Whole Foods and how just announcing, because I think it was like $12.9 billion and just announcing that they were gonna buy Whole Foods took down the stock of all of their competitors enough to inflate the stock of Amazon up $13 billion. So they literally offset the cost of purchasing Whole Foods by announcing it and watching the stock market dip their competitors. Sure. Yeah. So in the same instance, if I'm a product and I want your customers, I know that I can offset the cost of buying your company by the customer base you have. The other way is because you're afraid of what your competitors advantage are. So let's say that I'm a company that was built in 2010 on software from 2010 and we've been slowly upgrading, but you get this monolithic platform that's super tough to upgrade and it moves slow and it probably needs a rewrite. And you're watching this company come up out of nowhere off of a new technology that you that you can't leverage yet because your platform's not set up to leverage that. You may acquire them early on, give them a number that would blow their minds in the first, like, I don't know, 18 months of their company, right? If someone came to me in the first 18 months of Flex, I was like, I'll give you a million bucks for it. I'm probably saying yes, right? Like, even if I have this long-term vision for it, because I haven't been around long enough to know if my long-term vision's even plausible. So I say yes, and now what they did was they just hired for the staff. They hired for the people. They bought me and the people that were helping develop this platform. So it's either I'm acquiring users and some bit of functionality or I'm acquiring the people of that company to stop my competitors from getting them or from them competing with us. What is, if you had so- And VC uh, is totally different. So yeah. VC money is completely different from a company acquiring you because MindBody has the infrastructure to take you in and then pump you into their already existing gym structure. And what, what they do more with, um, venture backing is they in there's an influx of cash that you could never have on hand and so they'll buy up two or three companies in a portfolio that probably has 15 companies in it they'll shove them together they'll put some money behind them and make them 100x some sort of growth so they'll say hey we need you to grow 100 percent year over year in a in a single metric like users or like 
uh, revenue, whatever that dollar amount is, and they decide, and that's all they focus on. And when you have that level of focus, a lot of times when you bash three or four mom and pops together, there could still be inadequacies that span all four companies. And that's when you get these major pitfalls, like a company that they used to be so good at support and then they got a bunch of money and now they don't care anymore. Well, they don't, they actually don't care. You don't matter as much as the acquiring the new customer because at the end of the day, they have to go back to the people who invested in that fund and say, this thing grew. And if this thing didn't grow, like this thing grew at 30%, as a small business owner, I'm like, we had a great year. If you're growing 30% as a solo business owner, you're killing it. As a venture firm, you're probably getting nixed. 30% is just not good enough. They need 100% year over year. So you have to dial in a metric and just show 100% growth year over year and then you'll have the money. So you have to understand the levels of at play, like who's actually on the burner because the product guys aren't on the burner. They're getting paid either way. So let's talk about this. I have this conversation all the fucking time. Acquisition versus retention, which one is more important for the micro gem? And I truly believe it's acquisition not because I think it's actually more important. I think it's the harder skill set and the one that it's the rarest that brands do well. So you're, everyone is probably retaining well. I mean, and I hear guys say like, are you kidding me? Gyms aren't retaining it. I'm like, and even if they're in my line of work where I think they see numbers like in other gyms or whatever, I'm just like, yeah, but really how many gyms do you, and I consider like 93, 94 and above percent, totally doable, workable with, um, Anything below, I don't see that below. So I, I talked to some guys and they're like, ah, gyms can't retain at all. I'm like, what? I don't know which gyms you've been looking at that are losing 86% of their, you know, they're only maintaining 86% of their mem- members month over month. But I think the skill set of other great micro gyms uh, in the acquisition lane is narrow at best. So it's a smaller group of people to compete with. If you can be a great acquisition machine, you have very limited competition in your area. But from a retention standpoint, if like we turned off the faucets on every gym in Charlotte, so every gym in Charlotte, like right now, I would say Charlotte is not growing in a fitness stance. My gym's not growing. We're still retaining. I know the Dowd YMCA and Barry's and F45 and the other CrossFit gyms I talked to. Very few of us are growing exponentially, but we're all still here because we our retention fought. We're really tight on retention. So if you turned the fucking acquisition faucet off on a bunch of micro gyms in any in any market, they'd all still survive for a significant period of time, I think, with the recurring revenue of that current membership base. So that's my argument as to why I feel acquisition is more important if you want to develop a skill set in your business, then retention. Retention happens almost accidentally. It happens intangibly. Acquisition is not intangible. I also think that a lot of people put a lot of their time and resources, just to play devil's advocate, towards the acquisition and spend almost nothing on the retention. And I think that that can end up being a broken model. So someone who, like you- Only has, if the retention leaks to but, a but certain you point. you have business acumen, right? So there's an understanding here that, it, well, first of all, I totally agree that the better skill set is acquisition because retention is tied to product and service and acquisition is tied to understanding market. So like you said, if there's a scalable skill set, it's much better to understand Retention, it could just be rinsed and repeated. Because if your retention is based on the fact that you know you have the best fitness in town and then next week you don't have the best fitness in town, you have to figure out a new retention strategy. If you have an acquisition strategy, understanding how to implement an acquisition strategy is the tough part. So sure. if you understand how to implement that, you can just pivot like, hey, this is the demographic we're going after. Let's change this one thing and use that exact same plan with this different demographic. Can we also say that retention requires, the skill set is, 
It's more crockpotish. It's essentially checking in with the customers, making sure they don't feel like a number, making sure they're actually getting results. And even if they're not getting results, which we know most don't, they're having a great time. But see how intuitive that is to you? I'm just saying that I think that you're assuming a level of intuition that maybe isn't there in every business owner. See, that's the one thing is I think even gym owners who don't have the business acumen, they accidentally get that part because they're fall into it. They can fall into it because yes. they're good coaches. They actually like the members, so they're always making sure the members know that they're not a number. They really care about coaching. They think coaching is the strongest skill set they have, so they're actually really good at delivering the fitness. And at the very least, they make the classes entertaining. So the only thing that like most people cancel gyms, not due to any fault of the gym for the most part, but due to a a, a proximity, a financial, a change of heart in what they want to do fitness wise. So I just look at like the retention is way more of a layup. Like when someone's like, I need you, I need to pay you for an hour for retention. I'm like, are you sure? sure? Are you sure you do? But I look at it like this. I think that if you're talking about something like CrossFit, who offloaded the acquisition for you and like that's I and mean, we've talked that was like our first podcast i think we went on a rant about like hey oh man pay three thousand dollars a year and all they do is put you on a website it's like and they pump out 20 million dollars of advertising every month so you're wrong like it's not like the fact that there are no dick sporting goods selling shirts that say urban movement on it yeah but they do have ones that say crossfit on it and you're assuming that that's not jumping out of the customer, but you're just wrong because just the other day I tried a new drink because I saw it six times and I'm like, okay, now I want to try it. What was like, the drink? Yeah, um, that new, the new power or whatever Gatorade. I don't even know what the hell it's called. Bolt? Bolt. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fucking delicious. Yeah. They've got like billboards all over Charlotte. All over Charlotte. And guess what? I didn't try it the first time I saw a billboard. I tried it the 17th time. Have I saw you tried the, the Bang Seltzer yet? No. That Steve was like, I have to go try it. He's Dude, like, you're going to love it. Deuce is like, like three cases on him right now. He goes, you'll get back into drinking. <laughs> I was like, cool. Um, sounds, like a, <laughs> sounds like a worthwhile thing. Um, but yeah, so getting back to the acquisition thing, I think that CrossFit, like gym owners that started a CrossFit gym, have a better retention rate organically because all of the tough work of understanding how to cultivate that talent. So I think that retention has a direct correlation with how long your sales cycle is. So I worked in compliance software for special education. Our sales cycles were nine to 12 months. If you're building up value and having customer acquisitions that take nine to 12 months, your retention is gonna be super high because the thought of having to go through another 12 month sales cycle is just as miserable for your customer as it is for you as the business. So we'd get it an IEP, we'd fill out this entire thing. It would take us six months to even get a decision maker in the room. And that was such an eye-opening experience to me because once we had them, they were ours. Even if our software sucked, even if it had problems, even if it, you know, it had to, they were trying to do everything they can to make the software work. So then that way the person's on your side because you sold them for 12 months. What CrossFit did really intelligently was they had a narrow focus of their avatar. They knew who their avatar was and they went after it aggressively, almost in a way to alienate people who weren't like them. And now in this new CrossFit methodology, right? Like this idea that we're trying to touch more people is an evolution. But in the originals, it was like, are you a competitor who likes to compete at gym things? Come do this thing. And that's how I got into it, right? So. They've defined their avatar. They went after it aggressively. They put millions of dollars of advertising behind it and they sold them on it. And they may not have been sold the first time. I was not sold the first time I saw CrossFit. I tried CrossFit in 2009, did it for three months, didn't touch it again until 2012. That's three years of me learning more about it, hearing more people talk about it. So when I bought in, I wasn't buying in because of an impulse buy. It wasn't a two week pass that got me to try it. I tried it because I had three years of knowledge about it. And I'm like, maybe this is for me. And then I loved it. So now your retention is basically just not fucking it up. Yeah. Right? So that's what I hear what you're saying. Like, 
if you kind of luck into that, you back into it. But it's because there was so much work done in the education of the consumer on the front end. The funny thing is on the retention side too, to go to people who are in CrossFit gyms, if you do fuck it up, the person that's leaving your gym isn't CrossFit still retaining them. You're just not retaining Correct. them. They are now able to go to another another servicer of this CrossFit or perceived to be CrossFit thing that you offer. And so you uh, people are like, I don't understand. Where are they going? Like, I, I think, you know, what are they doing after they cancel me? If they didn't cancel because they had to move, they didn't cancel because of financial reasons. Like, what, like, were they going to go back to the regular gym? Oh, no. No, they're not. They're going to go to one of the other people that are offering functional fitness in a group setting that they just believe do it better than you or do it at a better price, at a better location, a better time slot, whatever the fuck it may be, whatever better is for that right. individual. But going to acquisition, like you're right, acquisition requires being nimble with your media that you present into the world, knowing the timeliness of it, understanding that media is like, and marketing and acquiring a client is a, it's like your outfit. It should be changing every fucking quarter. It should be changing all the time. If you're wearing fucking hoodies in fucking July, you something's wrong. You're too high. You need that. You are way too fucking high if you're walking around in July with a hoodie on. Um, I do always see that. I always see guys walking around in fucking like full sweats, hoodie over the head. It's like July. I'm like, bro, what like we just don't want to be seen. We just don't. <laughs> it's like uh, what, uh it's you ever like see the cloak, the cloak, or like Grandma's boy that scene where he opens the door. Is like Dante's like I'm putting on my Christmas tree. He goes, it's fucking June, Dante. <laughs> Why are you? naked <laughs> so yeah i just i look at acquisition as a lot of guys uh that give advice like i do on podcast or content whatever it is they just are like you got to focus on retention focus on retention i think they're saying it is because they truly don't have any good tactical advice to give these guys on acquisition right and I, well and because the, they don't have it figured out either and not only do they not have it figured out but here's and this is something that i've been saying for a long time just because i'm i'm more of like a I love psychoanalyzing, right? Like this, I'm a human nature guy. I want to understand why we are the way we are because to me, those are the building blocks of literally anything you want to do, right? Like being able to have communicate what I want well um, is probably the single most important thing that I've learned in my life. It's literally how to articulate my own thoughts is the thing I'm most proud of. And when you look back at that, it's like, well, there's levels to this stuff because when you have a customer that comes in and says, this is what I'm looking for, there's a bunch of assumptions being made. Number one is that they know what they want. And I don't know how many people you've talked to that know exactly what they want. It's kind of rare, right? Like when you really dig in, you're like, what are you really going for? Like, why are you really here, right? Like to get to that level. So there's number one. Number two is you're assuming that they know how to articulate what they want, which is another challenging thing as we see in social media, right? Like how many people get misinterpreted and there's misinformation and they're saying things wrong. Like there's so many levels to just the human interaction of acquiring that new customer that if you understand the fundamentals, you can very quickly say, this is not the person for me. This is the person for me. And I think it's that skill, that gut instinct, that salesman like you hone over time. And now you pop out 10 years later with a strategy that would only work for you, right? Because you know what your assets are. And I think that's what I've realized in the acquisition phase because that's what everybody comes to me for, right? Like the vast majority of my leads that come in from any consulting are acquisition. Everybody wants to understand acquisition. And what I tell them is like, what's your goal? And you would not believe, and I know you would believe exactly how many people can't tell me what their goal is. Like yeah. They say a goal like, I want more Instagram followers. I'm like, well, what does that get you though? Like, what is, like, yeah, that's superficial. We're get three the, years yeah, yeah. away, 100,000 followers. Now yeah. what? What do you have with that? What are you expecting that? Because I can tell you right now a video that'll go viral. I just don't know that you're going to be able to convert on that. 
right? Like if I woke up every day and I had a great chest and I took a picture of my chest every day and everyone liked chests, I could probably get a bunch of followers of people that like my chest. I can't then sell them software. They're just followers. And what you're gonna tell me is like, yeah, but your attention, then you're gonna have your branding out there. Yeah, you're branding a small subset of people that only 4% see your organic posts anyway. Like the numbers don't add up when you actually go back to the drawing boards and try to figure this out. So I'm like, what's your actual goal? Oh, your goal is new customers? Well, how are you getting customers today? Because you have a business. You wouldn't have called me if you didn't have a business. So how are you getting customers today? And what I find in probably seven out of 10 is they get all of their customers on referral. And I'm like, cool, so there's a strategy. We know how we're gonna go to market. We're gonna go to market with a great referral strategy. You're saying and this gym owners, seven out of 10 are getting most of their customers on referral? Most small businesses. businesses. In general. Yeah, small businesses, right? Because that makes sense. You don't have the capital to spend to attract this huge top of funnel. So you tend to have a lot of referral-based business, like DJs, like anything that's kind of more service-based. Would we say that stat is maybe, because I, I would argue against that. Would we say that stat looks higher, referral-based, just because, it's well, let's say let's say it's Jim and this is these are real numbers. Jim would be like, I got six new clients this month. That was a good month for us. Six new clients. In my head, I'm like, that's you're you're in a lot of trouble. But six new clients, great. And uh four of them came from referrals. I'm like, cool, what the other one? Well, one of them was just walking by because they drove walk by here every day when they go to lunch, and then the other one saw our website. So in that comparison, the majority of the business is coming in from referral, but it's just cause there's literally no outbound marketing acquisition efforts. Right. And so what they're coming to me is saying so what you're saying in that, if I'm, if I'm consulting you right now and you say that to me, I'm gonna say, okay, so how much money have you dumped into some sort of referral program? And you're gonna say, oh, well, I feel like I've maxed out the potential. Like, oh, so that's what you're saying. You're telling me that you've maxed out the potential of referrals. So what have you done already for your referrals? And they'll tell me, something, oh, I give them a month free, I do this, and I'm like, okay, so that's one offer. That's like me coming to you and saying, I ran one advertising campaign on Facebook and it didn't work, so Facebook must not work. No, you just found one lane and it seems to be working and 90% of your leads are coming from there. And my argument to, to in that in this scenario is that if someone can, comes in, how many people have come in and directly told you, oh, you got me with that Facebook ad? Oh yeah. Not yeah. that many people yeah. come in and consciously remember that it was a Facebook ad that actually got them to come up because it's not actually a Facebook ad. We, we both know that. It's seven to nine impressions, right? And it's not seven to nine of the same impressions. You're creating this 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 opportunity, and I need, I need this word, I need to go figure out what this word is, but you're creating this opportunity for a catalyst to come in and make them convert. So that perfect ad that you put out can definitely get somebody to convert. It's not gonna convert them from zero. They've already seen your brand, they validated it in some way, it's been mentioned to them by three friends, they passed your gym They've one day on primed. the way to work, and then one day that video comes out and they go, you know what, I'm willing to try. And they come in and they say, it was your video. It's and a, you come to me and say, it's the video. And I'm like, actually, it's the 16 people that talked to them before the video, but you didn't dig that far. You stopped at just what they said, which goes back to people understanding why they do the things that they do. And most people don't. So they just say the first thing that comes to their head. And you're taking that as critical data and making new decisions off of that. You have to understand that the human condition allows people to not always say exactly what they mean. And you have to be able to account for those differentiations. It's the, like when I, I used to mow lawns for money in high school and I'd walk up to the lawnmower and I'd just walk straight up to it and vroom, pull and then pull again and pull and the, it wouldn't start. And they'd be like, oh fuck, I gotta prime the engine. And there's that little red suctiony cup button that once you put gas in it, you push it a few times, it just lets just enough little gas into the fucking motor. So you pull one again, you pull, and finally that fucking engine catches because you prime the engine enough. But if Primed, you walk up, that's yeah. That's it, that's the word I'm looking for. That is for. the word Primed, you're looking for. But it, it, you know, so priming your, your 
prospects in your leads to, to again priming prospects to become customers again i believe is the the more advanced skill set i believe it's the most important one and it's also a numbers game so i look at it like a bucket and even if you only have let's call it, you got a gym with good retention let's call it 96 percent, 95 percent month over month you retain you lose five percent per month it's great so there's a couple little holes in that bucket okay those holes are always going to be there the reason retention cannot be more important than acquisition is because there is no such thing as plugging the holes. The holes will always be there. There is no gym what with you're optimizing for. Well, yeah. yeah. So it, it, you there, can't optimize for zero bugs. Correct. It's impossible. Yes. It just won't happen. It, there will always There'll be holes always be in the holes, bucket. Right. So everybody cancels on a long enough timeline. This bucket is slowly, if you didn't bring any new members in, the bucket slowly empties. That is as guaranteed as the sun is going to rise. It's going to happen. Now, the reason now acquisition has to be there is because you know that even if you don't do any acquisition, you will go out of business. No acquisition will go out of business. If you don't retain, let's say that went from 96% retention or 95 uh, with 5% attrition, you're losing 5% each month. Let's say it went up to 9% or 10% attrition. More people are locking on the bucket. There's an easy fix. It's just more acquisition. Sure. Like, and if you know how to hit the button, that happens because nobody stays a client forever. And I think there's a, like, if you don't understand the intricacies of a marketing funnel, right? Like, really understand it. Not just be able to talk about it, but like really understand what's going on here. I think most people just get bored with their advertising and marketing efforts, with their acquisition efforts. For example, if every Sunday you did a breakfast at one of the local apartments and it got you 25 people to come, and every single time it averaged four new members for you. Well, that would mean that if you did one a week for the course of a month, 16 new members. you're getting 16 new members. And I'm sure that's probably what you teach a lot of your early people who have no budgets to do anything else. The problem is when they have budgets and now suddenly that's not good enough anymore. Now I wanna automate that. What? You have a way to just show up somewhere and get four new customers with something you already know works and you want to abandon it for a strategy you know nothing about because you talked to some guy for $350 an hour? Come on, like use your brain. You think you're gonna just pull something out of the air and be better than what you're doing right now? Probably not, because you don't even understand how it works, which means that when a component breaks down, so let's just take your very basic funnel, right? Which is some sort of ad to drive traffic. So in this case, we'll call it a video. You're gonna put out a video on Instagram. This video is connected to a landing page. And then when they see that, they go to landing page, that's the capture, they put in their name and email address, it spits out a lead to you that you then go and try to acquire, okay? If you look at that very basic thing and have no idea what makes a good video, no idea what goes good on the Instagram platform, no idea how to create a landing page, no idea where to put the form capture, and nowhere for the lead to go to have follow-up, there are so many problems that could occur that you wouldn't even know were happening. And you're gonna call me as the guy who consulted you and said, that video you consulted me on, didn't work. And I'm like, did it not work? Or did you get 1600 people to the landing page and your landing page sucked, right? Like there's so many intricacies of that, but if you're involved in the whole thing, so what I like to look for is people who are doing it well and are not afraid of the work. If you have a campaign that worked for you from August to December, do it next August and December. Don't try to recreate the wheel. You already have one that works. Do it again. You don't want to, you want to be sexier. You want to use the new thing. Business isn't always sexy. Sorry, I understand that advertising, they make you want, they, everyone wants to be Ryan, well, maybe not. I personally Ryan want to Reynolds. be Ryan Reynolds. Of course. He's my favorite marketer. He's the best. He is my favorite marketer of all time and always will be because I look at a guy who understands value 
if you, for everyone, Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool, the funny guy. Yeah. He, you know, Mint Mobile, uh, his gin company. He's And he just created a firm, essentially, gets hired to make these amazing. He did one for uh, Match.com, where it was, and they did it to the tune of Taylor Swift's uh, Love Story, where it's this really hot chick, um, and then 2020, and 2020 is the devil, and they're going on a date or whatever. Right. And it's, it's fucking hysterical. He put up an advertisement where he gets up, talks about a Samsung product, and on the Samsung, which is a TV, on the TV is a movie that he's in that's coming out, and he stops in the middle to do an ad roll for his gin. And then he has a producer, this is super meta, come in from out of frame and say, are you really pitching your gin company during a Samsung ad where you're showing your new movie? And he goes, they pay the bills, right? And it's hysterical. And then you look at this account, and it's got 150,000 followers, and it's 150,000 people that are following ads. You're actually subscribing to see someone advertise. Because he does it in such a good value. In a very funny and viral way. The, and that's the thing. Funny is the value. Not everybody's funny. But if you can be funny, that's value in an ad. So like everyone's talking about like put out videos that have value. That doesn't mean your product's value. Like I don't have to put out videos that just talk about how has an entertainment value. Entertainment value. Yes. And that's a real value. But you're talking about a Hollywood celebrity putting these out. He understands entertainment value better than the novice. Yeah. Better than the average person. So you may think you're funny in your little circle with your friends. He's proven funny. Yeah. He's funny at the biggest stage outside of a stand up comedian. So he's implementing that in strategies that's making you want to follow him more. And then they do what you want with him. But that's not to say that if you laugh at an ad, you're going to buy his gin. What I will tell you is that I know aviation gin, and it's the only gin I know. Fair so enough. it's working, right? Yeah. Like in some ways, I would never buy gin. But if someone asked me, hey, did you want to get a bottle of gin? I would say aviation because it's literally the only one I know off the top of my head. We're getting I, – I scheduled this podcast at exactly the wrong time. With Deuce, <laughs> I'm fighting with Deuce with the Sonos speakers right now. So if you guys are hearing all this in the background, some DMX. We have a little DMX tribute going on. Um, <laughs> so I wanted, one thing you were talking about automation. I used this example the other day. I think it was good. I pulled that out of my ass. Uh, guy was asking me about automating very similar. It was more lead nurture he was wanting to automate and you and me have talked to numerous times we don't like that now the way i told him i said now self-admittedly the reason i don't like it is because it's not good enough yet just kind of like at some point somebody came to the factory worker and goes hey there's this thing called an assembly line and you're just going to put the widgets on this conveyor belt and it's going to go and then the robots are going to put the things on the widget and you're not going to have to have all these fucking people and they're like, oh, let me see it. And it was a fucking shit show. It just looks, and now you look at, have you ever seen an assembly line in a Tesla mega oh factory? God, it's, it's fucking unreal. You're like, this factory could take over the world right. if I wanted. Like right? that machine is, is insane. insane. Yeah. So right now, lead nurture, marketing automation is kind of like if you have a Roomba. If anyone here owns a Roomba, anyone listening owns the little fucking circular fucking discus vacuum that's supposed to vacuum <laughs> your place. I've owned three of them. Um, they do a dog shit job. It's yeah. super cool. It kind of does okay. It just, but guess what? In 10 years, I guarantee a Roomba is not only going to fucking Roomba my fucking living room in 20 seconds, it'll be able to blow me and bring me a beer. We'll also be able to ask it. Yeah. Hey, Roomba? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will you go clean my room? 100%. And it'll walk up the stairs and yeah. clean my room. And it's just one of those things where I'm just like, it's not good enough yet. So it's not that I'm anti-automation, but automation as it exists now is too robotic. It's not personalized enough. And will there be a time where it sounds super personalized? I do believe so, but not now. But it's a scary future also. But here, this is a great example of when to use numbers, okay? So let's talk about automation and when it makes sense. I'm IBM. I'm just gonna make this up, right? And I have a funnel 
where I need to have 5,000 people at the top end of this funnel, and I know that my sales force can convert whatever our monthly revenue goal or customer goal is from that 5,000 people. So my job as the marketer is to get 5,000 people in the top of this funnel, okay? With the reach that something like an IBM could have, they could probably get, let's, I'm gonna conservatively, let's just use fake numbers to make it easy for math. 10,000 people will see every single ad that they put out, okay? So I put out an ad, that means that I need 50% of those people to fill my top of funnel, right? So if my automation somehow fucks up 50% of the people that saw that ad, my automation, that's the, the auto messaging and all this kind of stuff screws up 50%, I'm still doing my job because you asked for 5,000. You didn't ask me to satisfy 10,000, you asked me for 5,000 people. So in this 10,000 people architecture, I fucked up 5,000 of them, but I still got you what you wanted. Now let's take that down to the numbers of a gym. If you're a local gym and you're getting 50 leads a month, how are you doing? You're doing good. You're doing good. You're doing good. If you lost 50% of those because of an automation, how are you doing? Yeah. You're out of fucking business. And that's the difference, right? The difference is you're trying to automate a process where you can't afford it to not work. You literally go out of business if it doesn't work. IBM doesn't care if it doesn't work. If they're three percentage points off or five or even 10, and that funnel only got 4,000 people in instead of 5,000, it's just gonna be a down month. Yeah. But if for 50, you, it, it tanks your business. Yeah, if, and when Joe says tanks the business, if 50% of the potential, so again, let's say you were getting 50 leads per month and 25 of them had a shitty robot experience where they're just like, oh, fuck this place. 25 people and then compound that over a couple years just you've like saturated your entire market maybe the, not the entire market but you've done enough you've done enough there to where you get a reputation and a reputation is, is almost impossible yes it's brand and it's almost impossible to change right and if it, it takes you again we've talked about rebranding to to the umph degree um no i i, I like where i went but going back to the round ryan reynolds thing being funny that is a thing it's just so timely. Uh, you know, it's an element in gym marketing that we don't see. We don't see funny. And I think it's hard. Now, where I'm starting to see a lot of funny, TikTok and Reels. There's a lot of funny things happening, like guys that I follow. This guy, you know, I know Forrest. His name's Forrest Young Jung. Uh, I, I'm fucking that up. He's out on the West Coast. I actually had him on the podcast. I interviewed him because he went through a serious depression after his gym was kind of eating shit, like business wasn't good. And he went on a mushroom fucking bender and it warped his mind. And he, he tells a story in the podcast how his mushroom psychedelic bender changed the way he thinks now. And that's why he's successful. Like, it, it's a very cool fucking psychedelic yeah. mushroom uh, Joshua Tree fucking story. But anyway. He's started ticking the talk and rocking the reels and fucking doing that whole thing. And his videos get 15,000 views on them. And he's just crushing them out. Funny is there. Like, I, my question to you is, at what point does a gym like me that has the disposable income go to a forest or someone like that as an influence? Like, hey, make me funny fucking talks and reels that I can run as ads. So funny, first of all, is relative, right? So there, right off the bat, I did a podcast yesterday. That I thought was funny and <laughs> very relative. <laughs> some people, some people might not have, but yeah, very I do that. Yeah, I, that's you're right. Funny is relative. Funny right? is relative, right? So what does that mean? That means you have to know exactly who you're talking to. So this always goes back to the avatar. If you don't know who you're talking to, you're not doing good advertising. Period. And this is a perfect example of that because if you don't know what your audience or what the person that you're trying to get into your gym finds funny, it's not going to be funny. Now. 
The problem with social media is that when you blast this funny thing out that's only funny to your demographic, which may be a very small subset of the population because you only need 250 members. We say your demographic, you mean the current members? Yeah. Okay. Like, so the people you're trying to attract, right? Got whatever it. that is, that whatever you're going for. If it's funny to them and not funny to 90% of the internet, you're going to get roasted online. And when it's something as specific as fitness, which is tied to how people are, right? Their physical bodies they feel like is wrapped up in fitness, their ego, their emotions, their self-worth. So many things go into fitness that you have to be very, very careful being funny in fitness, which is why I think not many people go into it because eventually you're going to get called out for something like body shaming or something like you know diet culture, something like victim blaming. There's so many different, very close social issues that touch in fitness. That's what makes marketing and fitness such a, such a dichotomy because it's kind of the easiest thing to market for, but it's also the hardest because it's very emotional marketing. You're very much hitting on core response centers that we have built up over years that we don't even know about. How much people's self-worth is tied to their image of how they view themselves is what makes fashion and fitness fun things to market because you're hitting right core. Like if you hit an ad that really tells somebody, like we've talked about this, you're not selling a gym membership. You're selling the idea that you're now gonna be able to acquire the new partner that you've been going at, right? Like now that you have a six pack, you're gonna get the girl you've always wanted. That hits somebody to their core because they're imagining their life changing because of this fitness. So you're able to market and advertise that. If you're an HVAC company, no one ties like their emotional well-being to how cool or hot their room is. So you can be a lot funnier in HVAC stuff because it's not touching any of your core beliefs, right? Like you can have some guy, a fat guy or a skinny guy, jump out of it and he could be any color, any race and because it doesn't actually matter. But when you get into fitness, you're hitting touchy subjects, which is why I find it such an interesting market to advertise in. So funny as a component of fitness is quite difficult and you're gonna pay for that. Look at Don Mazzetti. Remember pro yeah. science? Do you know how many people find him incredibly offensive? 5149. Uh, 51 probably find him offensive. But what a guess. Like, what a fucking broad stroke guess, right? Because if you're wrong about that, you just alienated 25% of people, and those are millions of people. But if we if we both believe but in... he's pretty... It, he's also very good at what he does. Correct, but if we also both believe in niching in, you also accept a 5149 split on most things anyway. But again, a 5141 split on an HVAC is not the same as 5141 split on someone believing believing you're a good person or not. And that's what happens when you create an advertisement because they people, so we have this thing that's happening and I believe this is a global thing, right? But you take social media and everyone keeps conflating brand and reputation. And I watch people literally use those words interchangeably. We just did a second, I just, we just did, did a second. Right? So like brand is company, reputation is personal. Let's, let's use those as our, as, our, uh, as our opinions right now. I argue that if you're scrolling through Instagram, all you're scrolling through is ads. It's all ads. Because it's either a company trying to position themselves in front of you or a person trying to position themselves in front of you. But what's the goal of an advertisement? Normally to convert somebody. And normally that conversion is a click. A well, follow, if I a click, post whatever. something to get you to like it, that's you clicking on So it's literally advertising. You're just advertising yourself. So over time, we are starting to like tangle up businesses and people to where like you are your business. So if Stu Brower says something, Urban Movement says something, or one degree away from Urban Movement. So when Urban Movement comes out and has its own opinion as a as an entity and not Urban Movement, but here's Urban Movement's voice, I'm the, I'm the person speaking on behalf of Urban Movement, that person's core values then get tangled in with that company. And so I think that right now what you're seeing is if I come out with an advertisement that pisses people off, it's no longer that was a poor advertisement by an, a marketing agency. It's that's who the company is. Ah, 
No, because most of the people don't even make their own advertisements. They outsource it. And there's probably a bunch of marketing companies that have gone under because big brands leveraging like a Pepsi coming out with a Kylie ad that pisses off everybody. That actually got people to stop going after Pepsi. And now that gets attributed to Pepsi as a company when it was an outsourced marketing firm that created the advertisement in the first place. So it's like, I think that now that we're starting to see a real blend of reputation and brand, and we don't tell the difference between a person and a company, you have to be a little bit more careful about the stuff that you're putting out for your business. So going the funny route is a difficult route to go. If you can accomplish it, you will reap the rewards of everything in life that's difficult to go after. And you're right. And I, funny is a different, you know, again, even if we're talking about creating content that is aimed at being funny, if you're not like, so here's it. if you tell a joke and it lands on 51%, it lands. However, the other 49% rarely just go, I don't get it. What they go is that was insensitive, yep. mean, whatever. If you make a motivational video, so we talk about, let's say an ad that was funny, you know, the one that was just meant to be motivational. Someone gets motivated by it. Fifty-one percent gets motivated. Forty-nine percent just go, yeah, just didn't do it didn't for me. me. But they, but it also didn't carry any right. negative weight. Zero. If it's informational, fifty-one percent say, oh, that's I didn't know that before. Forty-nine percent, I knew that or that's not that interesting to me. Yep. So when I look at that, I have a hard time placing giving funny uh, or looking at funny in any different way. Even though I understand that funny is just like informational or motivational, but just because you didn't find it funny doesn't make, doesn't, doesn't relay back to that, in the, to, to that individual or that company, whatever it may be. Why is it that funny, and I guess maybe this is just, in, this is just intrinsic as to what funny is, it, it's mainly because what's funny makes fun of something. Like to make fun of something. For something to be funny, it has to be a little true. Yeah, correct. Right? And that's, that's, that's the, the magic. That's, that's the that's magic. The, the magic of it is how funny can I be? Because we both have a preconceived notion. And if no one else knows it, it's an inside joke. Yes. Right? Like if no one else knows that we find something funny, I could say a word to you right now that would make you laugh. And no one on the podcast would know it was funny. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it may even be a reference to something that we both know to be true. Right? But when you go into the global scape and you say, hey, anybody can find this funny, you have no idea what the preconceived notions are. So you may be building off an assumption that everyone's like, actually, we don't view it like that. We view it like this and you're wrong. Now you just made one false assumption, which people make all the time, but that one false assumption now triggered a bunch of people. And now, like you said, it's not just, hey, we don't care. It's, hey, that's offensive. That feels like you're attacking me, right? Because ultimately you kind of are, right? But we all agreed that this is an okay level of, right? So I use this example all the time. How many people do you see online getting really heated, really triggered about someone calling them out for being bald? Not, I mean- Pretty fucking yeah, rare. Yeah, not that In often. In fact, no. it's fairly socially acceptable for me to go sit somewhere and someone who I don't know to come up and make a comment about me being bald. I just have to accept that. I've been balding since I was 19, so it's a little premature. And I have had people come up to me that have no idea who I am and say, you get it, you know, because the... And I'm like, can you imagine if I turned to someone that was overweight and hey, said, Q-ball. you know me, because you get it, because you're... And it's like, that's so offensive. Well, why isn't it offensive to me? Well, it's because there's not enough of me out there. 
That's kind of how it works. We're just, we, either people that are bald are not generally offended by it, or we just haven't been outspoken enough for that. There's also people that opt, bald can also be a, a personal fashion statement versus some people will opt to be bald. I think very rarely is someone that can grow a full head of hair opting to be like, some guys look good. Samuel L. Jackson would look, looks horrible with hair except for Pulp Fiction. <laughs> sure, sure. Or Jerry Curls. Yeah. I do think that there's anecdotes that you can But like bald can also be. But also, like, that, you know, talk about the bald one. The other reason why there's probably not that much, because it also is coordinated with a horrible treatment plan for cancer. Right? Sure. You, you, you know, like, God forbid. It's kind of like, you know, like the joke of, like, oh, man, you gained a few pounds over the winter. But like, no, I'm pregnant, dickhead. Right? right? Like, oh, man, bald. No, I'm going through chemo, dickhead. <laughs> right. Like, And I can even use more specific. So I have food allergies. There's another thing that, like, I used to get made fun of relentlessly, and still to today, like, I get some things, but I'm just old enough now that it doesn't matter. But when I was a kid, oh, my God, I used to have stuff thrown at me in the lunchroom because I had food allergies and all that stuff. Can you imagine? Did they make you sit at a special food allergy table for weirdos? No, but I did get a kid uh, kicked out of school. For? For throwing a peanut at me. Knowing Uh, that I had a peanut allergy. Yeah. Um... Because at some point, the severity got lost because of how funny it was to make fun of the kid that couldn't have peanuts. Because back then, it wasn't as as prominent as today to like talk about That's allergies. so funny. Like, so I now, picture that. Like, you, you fucking pussy. You can't yeah. eat peanuts. Oh, for sure. And like <laughs> literally throwing them at me like, as if that wasn't them in front of you. Like, mm, just peanuts yes. are so good. Constantly. You can't. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> I think I used to go to birthday parties and what did you have? You had pizza and ice cream. I couldn't eat either one of those things. So I would hit there with a cold hot dog and some microwave fries and everybody would make fun of me. Even, and I mean, oh. it wasn't even just young. My first year of college, my coach, because I wasn't a starter, wouldn't stop to get me lunch. <laughs> we went to a place and I was like, I can't eat here. I can't eat any food. He goes, like, You're not playing. Exactly. Anyway. Fuck, we just kept driving. That was it. I just didn't fucking eat. Shut up, peanut boy. Right? Like, back down. Yeah, so it's like, I think that, but that gets brushed under the rug. Can you imagine if nowadays that same attitude was taken towards vegans or gluten intolerant people? Those people have very high sensitivities to people saying, We don't have vegan options here. What do you mean you don't have yeah. vegan options? And I'm sitting here like, whoa, bitch, you guys got new menus. I have had peanut allergies. And by the way, gluten is an intolerance for you. Or vegan is a choice for you. Not for everybody, but for some, it's a ch- for most, it's a choice. I didn't get to choose to be allergic to peanuts. I would love it if I didn't have a peanut. I would love it if my peanut allergy just wasn't so severe. Like, I'm so allergic to peanuts that one could fly past my face and I could have an anaphylactic reaction. That's a very serious thing. But when I go to a restaurant and I tell them I have a peanut allergy, they roll their eyes as if I have a gluten allergy and they're so sick of dealing with it. Right? So, like, yes, there's always going to be a portion of the population. So you could put out something very funny that's very anti-allergy. And most people wouldn't give a shit because most people don't care that much. They don't know enough people that have So the volume of people that suffer from the thing you're making fun of. How loud it is already. That's what you have to remember. So, like, if you look at social media platforms, it's going to be very much the social landscape. So if in your group that's not very much on social media has these jokes, they may not pan out well when you put them in front of a bunch of people who are keyboard warriors. I just said, let me tell you, I know this is a little apart, but it's funny. I just talked to a buddy of mine who was a troll, who was a self-proclaimed troll for three years. From when he was 23 to 26. So everyone, just define everyone what a troll is in case they... And I think this is the best part, right? Like, actually, let's do it this way. You define what a troll is. A troll is an individual who is is purposely stirring the pot in comments and videos, things that they actually have no interest in whatsoever, but they see the ability to goat a group of people or an individual. And now, how do you think most people view that person? Who are they imagining is doing that? 
Who are they imagining is doing that? Like, are they imagining you sitting behind your desk doing it? No, no. But I'm telling you right now that the person that I talk to is just like you. I'm not going to say who it is. Yeah. Right? But they're just like you. They're not this kid with, he was overweight sitting in his mom's basement eating pizza trying to start controversy. They're just sitting on the shitter trying to blow 10 minutes and you have the opportunity to make someone feel something that they don't want to be feeling and you do it because you don't give a shit and then you walk away from an unemotional conversation and someone on the other end is triggered and that gives you some weird dopamine hit. Those people exist and they're everywhere. So I asked him, I was like, He's like, I was like, so what's the deal? Like, do you really, like, what made you start it? What just happened? And he goes, you know how fun it is to try to figure out what's the shortest amount of words you could say to somebody to trigger them? And I was like, what did you land on? He goes, six words. I only needed six words. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> he goes, I go to a video, and whatever the video is about, I would just make a controversial statement. Like, whatever the antithesis of what they were going in the video, I would just put it in a comment. And sometimes it had nothing to do with it. So it would be something about men versus women, and I would say, why does everything have to be a race issue? has nothing to do with the, with the video at all, but you know that someone's going to comment back. He goes, and no matter what they said back to me, I would respond, no one asked for your opinion. <laughs> and that's it. And even when he said it to me, I felt my nerves go up because I'm a pretty sensitive guy. And I'm like, I can only imagine being on the other side trying to like to articulate very well exactly how they are wrong. And then they're like, no one asked for you. And you're like, fuck you. <laughs> like, you get mad. And he just went, eh, and he just moved on. And inevitably at the end of one of his conversations, somebody that's another troll or somebody who also understands the internet goes, nice one, man. Cause they knew exactly what was going on. And what I'm saying is that 70% of the internet doesn't imagine those people to be us, to just be normal people who use the internet on an average day and have dopamine hits from making people feel a certain way. So now nobody thought Dexter was a serial killer either. Right. Well, so so go into Instagram now and realize that when somebody gets 400 comments, it's not because the post was so good. It may be literally because enough trolls have ways to incite rage in people. And though the first 400 go to every Barstool post, every single Barstool post is littered with trolls, littered with people just saying shit to make other people who are actual Barstool fans. Hey, because you went to their comments, you think that Barstool was the worst company in the world. And they're not. They're succeeding in every way, and they're growing exponentially. And yet, if you look at their comments, it looks like everyone's like, this thing sucks, get back to sports, you're a piece of shit. And they're doing that just to incite the people that already like Barstool to come defend them. Because that is what they get. So their you're saying job. Barstool manufactures the trolls to get their oh, no, fans? They post specifically to, so that their trolls come out in troves to their own posts. In fact, I would even go to, as far as to say, I wouldn't be surprised if most of the people there had troll accounts. And their responsibility was to go troll their own stuff. Do you think it's a strategy for people if your following's it's a big enough? For high growth, for if, sure. If you have a high, big enough, big enough following, and you want to grow further, and you want to activate your following, you actually make content that you that's bait for a troll. Engage. Let let the trolls come in and engage, and then the followers yeah. come through. I mean, if you think about it, it's the most basic of all advertising strategies. You have to put out something that people want to engage with, and whether you decide to make that engagement pure or you make that engagement filtered or you make that engagement just troll whatever that's up to you but you have to be able to then deal with what comes off of that and that's where i feel like a lot of people say something like oh yeah i could make videos like that or i could do things like that and you're like can you can you really handle the full life cycle of a video that really like people hate you and you're getting dms about it like i have a buddy in town who showed me some emails that he got from and he doesn't even have that many followers you're talking about you know under ten thousand, and these emails that are like you're a piece of shit and i'm gonna find you and tell you like crazy stuff and you're like oh my god what a horrible thing to have to endure while doing this 
but he also understands that he puts out some stuff that's going to make those people happen and he's going to have to handle that. So it's like, just get into it in a way that I'm not completely disengaged. I understand what's going on. I understand what I'm doing and this is a part of it. And I think that once you understand that, and that's what I mean going back to make this full circle. If you go back to that marketing funnel, if you understand all the pieces, you get to play with different things. If you're going on Instagram for the first time with your first ever Instagram strategy, and you're trying to do one of the most complex things, come up with something funny and nuanced that clickbaits trolls and gets engagement. Good luck. People spend their entire careers trying to figure out how to manufacture that. And you're going to do it on a side job while you're on the shitter at your gym. Like, come on. Like, just give a little bit more respect for the people that are doing it really well. Understand this. If a part of your marketing strategy is a social media platform, and there's people out there that are making millions and millions of dollars off of just that social media platform, you're not just up against the other companies that are advertising on that platform. You're up against people whose entire job is to figure out how to make money posting something. And you want to use it as just a side scratch to get people in your gym? It can work, but you better understand that you're not in a realm of people who don't know what they're doing anymore. There's literal careers made out of it now. So what I want everyone listening to do, I want you to go ahead and if, wherever you see this, if you see it on Instagram or whatever, if you would, please just troll us in the comments. We want to see <laughs> how good this could get. I in would fact, I may even, de I may just create a new account just to post just something to start, underneath Just start trolling this. Yeah. All guys, until the next Jam with Joe episode, we will see you. Take care. It's been fun.